Let's go ahead and open with prayer, and we're going to be in Galatians 6. We're almost done with the book of Galatians, and then we're going to go into the book of Ephesians. So let's go ahead. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for the opportunity to come before you. We ask you guide and lead as we look at these few verses in Galatians that you would have us to look at and, and help us to understand in your son's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Let him that is taught the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in, in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. We're going to stop there because this got quite a bit in this little, little section. You know, Paul's encouraging the, the Galatians at the very beginning is, he says that, let him that is taught the word communicate unto him that preach, uh, teaches in, in, in all good things. And this word for communicate is literally to have fellowship with, to, to, to be in fellowship with. And, and I've seen pastors who seem to think that they're above all the people. They don't, you know, they don't hardly talk to people. And I didn't even spend much time in those churches because I don't think that's the best place. Paul is saying, you, you go to the pastor, you talk to the pastor, you talk to the teachers. You communicate, you know, what have you learned from them? Studying this verse has challenged me because there's a number of preachers that I listen to online that I probably need to send, you know, just a little thank you for being online too because I've learned things from them. And we need to be that way. Number one, it helps them to know that they're teaching something that's worthwhile. You know, the worst thing to do is be a teacher and have everybody look at you blankly like, what are you talking about? I've done that in a, I did that one time I was a, a supervisor in a Christian school and I'd be talking and you'd get these blank stares from the kids like, you know, who is this guy? What are they telling you? you? They know exactly who you are, but they're looking at it like you, they don't know any, who you are or what you're talking about. You know, and it's very hard to teach when you get that kind of response. <laughs> and, and it's very important that, you know, for teachers, when their students and the people that are being instructed respond back to them, mm -hmm. it draws more out of that teacher. I've done it many times. I've seen it also. And I, I, in College Park, I would, they had two services. And the, and the first service was sometimes very dead. It seemed like people were asleep. And I'm going, I'm sure glad I'm not having to preach today because it was just like <laughs> zombies out there. You know? And it's like, you know, no response, no, nobody talking, you know, nobody paying attention. And I'm going, wow, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't preach in that. That would be tough. But, you know, when you respond, people are interactive they're listening for you on our on all of our studies throughout the week we're interactive people can ask questions and 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 say you know give give uh, what god has shown them and it's wonderful when when people come around and they start sharing this is what god is teaching me you know the greatest blessing is when people come back to you and say hey you know this is what i learned from the message or even better this is what i learned learned studying this week you know this is what i learned and this is what god showed me when we get that kind of growth going on, it's an amazing place. It's an amazing thing to hear people say, you know, hey, I was reading the Bible and God shared this with me. And you know, sometimes I've gotten the most ex exhilarating examples of God teaching from people sharing what God has shown them. You know, and it's wonderful sometimes, you know, if you get excited about it, it's important. 
uh, I've taught a class on how to study the Bible. And the thing I've told people, the most important tool in studying the Bible is prayer and the Holy Spirit. Okay? You can have all the tools in the world. You can have the best commentaries, the best lexicons, the best concordances, the best computer program in front of you. And if the Holy Spirit isn't involved in that study, you're wasting your time. And, and I've shared this many times. As a teenager, I would, before I learned how to use all these tools, I would, I would go to God, I'd hear something preached. You know, and I went to a lot of different churches when I was growing up. My dad was in the Navy. We went to different churches every three years because we'd go to another place. And I'd gone to Assembly of God, Baptist, Southern Baptist, uh, you know, different churches all my life. And I, would, and I would hear these messages, and they would use the same verse and say that it meant something different in each church. <laughs> you know, and as a teenager, I was getting kind of confused. So I would go, and I'd go grab my Bible and say, God, I need you to tell me what the meaning of this verse is because I'm confused. I've got different pastors and teachers teaching me different things about this verse. And the Holy Spirit would give me an answer about the, that verse. Then I started going to Bible college and I learned how to use all these different tools and you know what I found out? The Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about when he taught, taught me. Now I could prove it because you know before it was just the Holy Spirit taught me. Now. Now after I learned to be able to get into the tools, I can say, okay, now I know why it was true. And so I'm not saying that you don't want to learn how to use tools and, and understand the reasons why, but I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit will give you the right answers. The Holy Spirit, if you're listening to Christian radio and you hear somebody speak something that's not the truth, will be whispering in your ear saying, this guy's not teaching the truth. Or if you're watching an evangelist on television, this guy is not speaking the truth. He's not biblically sound. And we want to be careful about that because I like to put, I like to put teaching in the background and just kind of listen to the background. And I can't tell you how many times all of a sudden I've got that nudge, pay attention. Your mind's being filled with something that's not right. And I start paying attention and sure enough, it's not right. The Holy Spirit is our greatest teacher. He is going to teach us how to follow God, how to interpret the scriptures. Why? Because he was there when it was written. <laughs> He's the one that guided their hand on what to write. And he knows what he meant to put in there. And he knows how to expand it to beyond it, everything. The greatest thing I love about the Bible is some people, how many of you ever had somebody tell you, well, you believe all that stuff in that old, ancient book that's not relevant for today? Mm -hmm. you know, you've probably all heard that somebody say, you know, the amazing thing to me is the Bible is so relevant for today, so true for today. In our Leviticus class, we, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about all these different sexual sins that God said don't do. And one of the people came out and said, well, that's what we're starting to see happening today. And you know, it is. There's, you know, in Ecclesiastes, which I just got done in my reading, in, is he says there's nothing new under the sun. And there isn't. The sins are still all the same sins. They're wrapped a little differently. They're packaged a little differently, but they're the same sins. You know, the sex has always been a big sin, sin draw for people, and it's always been all through the scriptures. Uh, alcohol, drugs have been a, been a problem all through, all through the millennia. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about it. You know, the Old Testament the laws tell you not to do them. You know, nothing is new. 
Satan's lies are still not even new. He keeps telling everybody, you know, do good things and you'll be acceptable before God. And that's what every single religion that he's the founder of says. Yeah. In one sense, all religions te teach the same thing, and, it and all of them teach good works. Now, but it's also very true that they don't teach the same thing, because they don't teach how to, how to do these good works in the same way. But boiled down, they all do. You do whatever it is, and you're going to get pleased. You're going to make it to nirvana. You're going to make it to heaven. You're going to make it to be a god. You're going to make it to the next, the next uh, higher order of uh, form of life. You know, all it boils down to is you do the work and you get the rewards. That's not God's way. God's way is a real simple way. You're a sinner. You've sinned. You deserve hell. Now, if any of these other religions taught that, they would be teaching the right way because they would be headed toward Jesus as the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We believe a very narrow truth. Now, it's the same thing of if you were to get on board an airplane that was headed toward Washington, D.C., but you think you're going to Hawaii, you may truly believe you're going to Hawaii with all your heart, mind, and soul, but you're going to end up in Washington, D.C., where the plane goes. <laughs> okay? Uh, and all these people say, well, there's, you can have all these different ways. No, God says there's one way. He is one way. And he reveals the truth to everybody. He reveals the truth that we're all sinners. We all have a conscience. It's amazing the stories we're getting out of the Middle East where these Muslims are seeing Jesus in, in visions because they're really seeking God. And he says, okay, you're seeking me. I'm coming to you. I'm going to show you who I am. And they're seeing who he is. You read missionary stories about these missionaries that have gone to the, to the Indian tribes or the African tribes, and they greet them and saying, well, we're so glad you're here. We've been waiting for the rest of the story. <laughs> they had just enough story to know that they needed to use, that God was the only way to, to get to heaven, and they wanted the rest of the story. They had just enough truth to be able to accept God or reject him. God has always done that. When ill the people stand before God, there's not going to be one person that stands before God at the white throne judgment and says, well, God, I never knew, I never knew any better. <laughs> you know, we in America definitely can't say that. Most of Europe can't say that. But you know, even these places where God isn't the forefront of their, of their life, they can't say it either because they have a conscience that they're going against. And God is saying, we need him. We need him to be, to be pleased. We need his forgiveness. And he's going to judge us by the amount of light we have. The more light we have, the more we're accountable. Those of us who go to church every week, we're accountable for lots of light because we're given more and more light. But you know, it's all him anyway. I surrender my life and he then grows more in me, changes me, makes me more like him. And I've said it over and over, living the Christian life is probably the easiest life you can live because all you do is surrender and God does the change. God does the change. I'm not working real hard to be a good person. I'm not working real hard to, to stay away from sin. I'm going, God, you keep me away. I'm, you are my shelter. You're my defense. And that's what he's asked. In, in Psalms, where we get all, almost every, at least every other Psalm, if not every Psalm, talks about God is your savior. He's your defense. He's your stronghold. He's your buckler. 
you know, he's your protector. Every one of them says that when I'm having trouble, I hide in God. You know, what's our American way? God helps them who helps themselves. You know, there's many people who swear that's in the Bible. But that's the exact opposite of what God does. God helps those who let their flesh be crucified and surrender to him. And then he takes over. If I want to do it, he's going to say, fine, you go ahead and do it, and I'll watch you fall flat on your face a few times. I'll watch you fall into the holes. I'll fall, watch you fall into traps. I'll watch you say all the wrong things, do all the wrong things, think it's all you, and have you fall because pride goes before the fall. And God says, if you want it to be you, I'll just stand back. But David, as a warrior, understood. He said that he's our strong tower, our refuge in the time of need. And we talk about this in the Psalms class. In David's day, you had the cities that were walled cities. If you were any distance from the walled city, they built a tower. And when the enemy came anywhere near, you didn't have to try to race the enemy to the city. You ran into the tower. The tower would have one door. It would be bolted with great big heavy log bolts. And you'd have window slits and there would be weapons within the tower, but nobody could really get into the tower because the holes were all over the place, you know, were so high they couldn't be crawled through and, and reached. And it was a strong defense against your enemy. God is described as the, our strong tower. We're going about life and the enemy attacks. All God says is run to the tower. Run to the tower. Once you were in that tower, you didn't have to do anything. The tower protected you. They couldn't, get the, they couldn't get the weapons into those little slits. They couldn't break down these doors easily. The tower was your defense. You weren't sitting in there going, I gotta protect myself. I gotta keep, I gotta make sure these walls stand strong. No, you depended on the tower's walls to stay strong. And that's what God asks us to do. When we're at our lowest point, he says, run into the tower and just say, God, I'm here, protect me. You're my defense. And you can't have a better defender than God. God has never lost a single battle, ever. He is our best strength. Paul goes on in this next section. He says, God is not, be not deceived or led into bad doctrine. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall reap. For what he for he that sows to the flesh shall of the soul flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the spirit shall reap life everlasting. Sowing and reaping. We talked a couple weeks ago, you know, the, the, when we went, my wife and I went to the pastor's wife retreat, the guy said, you know, if this, the reaping was of sin was instantaneously, instantaneous, we wouldn't sin. And his example was you eat the donut and all of a sudden this, this big bulge popped out on your side. <laughs> You know, eat donut bulge, eat another donut big bulge, you would stop eating <laughs> the donuts, which you probably shouldn't overeat anyway. <laughs> would you say no, you'd keep eating it if it popped up immediately, okay. <laughs> but the idea on this is, is the problem with sowing and reaping is, just as when you plant a garden, you sow your seeds and you don't go in the morning and you don't go back that evening and say, okay, where's the fruit? Uh, and we all know that. <laughs> Now, we all know that if you've ever planted anything, you don't go looking for it the same day you plant it. Mm -hmm. You probably don't go looking for it for the same week or two that you planted it. 
before something pops up. And you're definitely not looking for fruit for a couple weeks, you know, for several weeks to months. Uh, and yet, so often we want to see people who have sinned get their, get their reward, their fruit instantly. Or we, when we do something good, we want to see the good fruit come. Okay, God, I did something good. Where's the, where's the reward? Uh, God, it's been 30 seconds since I did something good. Uh, where, where's my reward? <laughs> but God is not mocked. He will provide the fruit. We need to be patient, just like that farmer. And David, in, in the early psalm, goes, why do the heathen rage and the nations uh, wage war? You know, because he's going, they, they seem to have everything good. Everything, you know, they do bad, and they're still not judged. They're still not judged. God gives an awful long time before he judges people. And when it's us that needs the judgment, we're pretty glad that he takes a long time, aren't we? <laughs> You know, God, thank you. You didn't give me what I deserved. You gave me a chance to repent, and, and I repented. And sometimes when we repent, the fruit doesn't come for what we did. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. But boy, if it's somebody we don't like, it's, God, why haven't you punished them yet? You know, God, uh, you know, what's going on here? And God's trying to say, I'm giving them time to repent. I'm giving them time to come to me. We look at nations. The nation Israel rejected God so often, so often, and he'd give them decades to come back to him, if not centuries, and then he'd send punishment to them. And they'd come back to him, and they'd repent, and then they'd start sinning, <laughs> and God would give them decades to, to, to come back to him, and then he'd send judgment. God does that to us. One of the statements I hear so often from pastors is, if God doesn't judge America, he's got, to, he's got to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. God doesn't have to do anything, number one. Okay, he's sovereign. He can do what he wants, and he will judge, and he will bring judgment. And if it's in our times, and whether it's in our time or not is, up to, is not right. He is going to bring judgment. And this country, I think, is starting to see judgment. We're starting to see things happen in this country that have not happened in three, four hundred years. Weather patterns being changed, uh, um, diseases that are sweeping us that have never, never hit us before. We're starting to see judgment. And I'm willing to say that the weather is part of the judgment that we're facing. This country was founded on godly principles, on God's, God's principles, and he protected this country from much of the weather this country had always gone through. And if you want to check that out, go in and check some of the Indian histories of this place. You know, back before the white people came about the, the storms that they would get and the tsunamis and the earthquakes and, and how bad the weather was in this country, in this nation. We came in, settled it with God's principles, and God gave us a lot of protection, just as he always does. He's lifting that hand of protection. I think we're at the end days anyway, so all that protection is going to go, period. But he's starting to lift the hand, hand of protection off this country. This country is starting to reap what it sows, has sown. The church did not do its job in the 1800s and the early 1900s to teach God's word strong and say, you need to keep your, your leaders principled in, in, in a Christian way. We're getting the leaders we deserve in this country. Now, if we, get, if we start doing our job and we start evangelizing and we start getting the people's hearts turned to back to God 
and then we start voting according to what we believe, we will see changes. But you know, our answer for everything that's going on in America is not in our government. We could have the best government governors in the world. If they won't vote the way God wants them to, it's not going to make any difference. If all they want to do is be politicians who stick their finger up in the wind and see which way it's blowing and vote according to that so they stay in office, that's what we're going to get. We haven't had statesmen in office in a long time. They're going to make right decisions regardless of whether it keeps them in office or not. We need to pray for statesmen to be elected. We need to pray for people who have convictions to be elected. But the only way they're going to get convictions is if the churches start preaching the gospel as a group. And there's pockets of churches everywhere that still preach the gospel and still preach the word of God is absolute and has a standard. But I can tell you, the majority of churches in this country don't preach the gospel. They don't preach something that's going to offend people because they're afraid of losing their people. Now, I'm not one of those, obviously. I'm going to preach sin is sin. Sin is sin, and, and sin deserves judgment. But I want to see God move. I want to see him move. I want to see us grab hold of his word and to learn what it is and how to follow it and how to be obedient. Our country's changing. I'm very fearful that we won't have the country that we're used to in, in less than a year or two. I'm really afraid that we're going to lose our country. This is not going to be the American Republic that we're used to. You know, handwriting's on the wall. Unless this country repents for its sins, we're not going to have the country that we, we're used to. But by the same token, that's good for the church in one way anyway. Persecution in the church brings the Spirit's movement. Been reading the book off and on, uh, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. The more God moves against, the more Satan moves against the church, the more people got saved. You know, uh, in in uh, the Sudan, the life the life expectancy of a Christian right now is about about five to seven years. They become a Christian and they will be dead within seven years. Millions are being being killed over there, and then millions are getting saved. <laughs> You know, and you're going, why would people get saved if they're going to die seven, you know, within seven years? Because God is moving. They're seeing God move in these people's lives. And they're saying, these people are different. They've got something that I don't have. And they want it. The sad thing is here in America, when we're not facing any persecution, we have a hard time telling people about Jesus. We have a hard time getting people to come to Jesus. Why? I don't, don't know the full answer, but maybe we're not trusting in the Spirit enough. Maybe we're not being the examples we're supposed to be. Maybe we become just like the rest of the world. <laughs> and the, you know, the sad thing is that's true. The divorce rate in the world is 50 to 60%. The divorce rate in the church is 50 to 60%. We know that God hates divorce. We know that the only grounds for divorce for God is for adultery. And yet in the church, there's just as much, just as much divorce for no, re for no valid reason as the world. The Bible says that we're to, to love one another. We're to work with one another. We're not to be t running right to the courts to solve every problem. What happens just as much in the church as anywhere else? Well, you really should sue somebody for that. Your, your rights have been violated. Now, maybe there's a time to sue somebody. Maybe there's a time to sit in the refuge of God and God be your defense. Because it just doesn't fit the right problem.
We're to love one another. How many times in a church do we attack one another and gossip about one another? And, you know, if you really knew this person, you wouldn't be their friend. You know how many times I've heard that about different people up here in Chloride? People have tried to tell me, well, if you knew this person, you wouldn't even be talking to them. I go, well, I guess it's good that I don't know them. You know, because I want to know people after the spirit, not after the flesh. I don't know if you noticed the big, big sign I had on the, on the PowerPoint this morning, but it says, Satan knows our name, but calls us by our sin. But God knows us by our sin and calls us by our name. Do you realize the power of that? Satan wants to keep reminding us about how bad we are. How many times do we fall for that? You know, I'm, a, I'm terrible, I'm a loser, I'm a nobody. Why would anybody listen to me? Because, you know, if they really knew me, they'd know all my sins and, and they wouldn't want to be around me. And you know what? Probably all of that's true. It'd be the same thing if you really knew me <laughs> and all my sins and all my problems. You probably wouldn't want to be around me. But God, even though he knows all that about us, he calls us by our name. And you know what is the name that he gives us? In Revelation, we're told that he's given us a name that only he and we know and, our, and ourself knows. He's got some special name for us in heaven. Hopefully, it's a good name. <laughs> Hopefully, it's a good name. We deserve some kind of good name because we've been faithful, obedient, prayerful. But he knows our name. And he calls us by our name. Why does he call us by our name and not by our sin? Because Jesus paid for the sin. He put it under the blood. Do you realize there's only one sin that sends anybody to hell, and that's to reject Jesus Christ? Because all the sin has been paid for? There's only one question that God has for anybody standing before him. What have you done with my son? You know, not how much good did you do, how much bad did you do, did you confess all your bad, did you, did you repent from all your bad things, is what did you do with Jesus? Now the rewards will come through letting him work through us, but we're going to reap and sow. When we sow good seed, we reap good seed. When we sow bad things, we generally will reap bad things. It's a, just a law that God has put into place. Now, can he divinely come in and say, okay, you've sown bad seed, and I'm going to stop it from, from growing in your life? Absolutely, he can. Does he do it very often? Not very often. I've seen it happen. I've seen people not get what they deserve because they've repented and come to God. And God can change the consequences. And there's all kinds of testimonies where somebody has been a thief or a robber or anything, and they go and they confess their sin, fully expecting to be sent to jail. And God says, okay, I'm going to, because you've been obedient and you're trying to change your life, I, he blocks the result. Sometimes they go to jail. I mean, there's no guarantee. But God says, you're going to reap what you sow. And then the last verse I want to just look at here is, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Because there is such a thing as sowing and reaping, God says, keep reaping good seed, or sowing good seed. You will reap eventually. And we, and as I said, you know, we're looking at our watch saying, God, it's been, it's, been, it's been 30 seconds since I did good. Where's the fruit? It's been a day. It's been two weeks. God, it's been a year. What's going on? God says, don't be weary. Just keep sowing. And then on that last verse, it says, do good unto just the good people. 
That's not what it says, is it? We're not to go out and just do good to all those people that are good. Uh, the ones that are nice to me, God, I'll be good to them because they're good to me. Well, the world does that. That's nothing, that's nothing special. He says to do good unto all people. All people. That neighbor who, who is always playing their music loud and keeping you awake in the middle of the night, he says be good to them. That neighbor who's always saying what a terrible things about you because they don't like Christians, he says be good to them. Jesus came to this world and said, I'm going to die for the good people, right? <laughs> no, he died for everyone. While we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. And his example for us is to go out and do good. Be good. Be Christ to all people. It's not easy at all. It's not easy to, to be kind to that person who has just cursed you out for no reason. And you look at him and all you want to do is smack him upside the head or curse him back. And God's saying, be kind. Be kind. And then he says, and, and it, to make it even easier, he goes, and especially those of the household of faith, you know, other Christians, he says, be kind to them. Why? Because they should be being kind to you, so that should be the easiest. Being, being kind to other Christians should be easy because they should be being kind to you. But even if they're not, God says to be kind to them, to love them, to, to, to be kind. God's grace wins people. God's grace is what wins people. God doesn't pile the lawn and say, if you were this good, you, you'd, you'd, you'd be good and you'd come to me. Matter of fact, it says that the law kills. And anybody who's ever had a bunch of laws put on them, you know how bad it is because you're sitting there striving to meet what they tell you you have to do. And unfortunately, church, there are many churches out there that are good at this. You know, I remember back in the, 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 the 50s, 60s, there was this idea that for women, you, when you came to church, you better have your dress on. It better be down to your ankles. You didn't wear makeup. You didn't wear jewelry. Because if you did all that stuff, you were trying to draw attention to yourself and you just were, you know, that, you know, that was wrong. <laughs> You know, men have your hair cut short and your, your suit and your tie on and look, look, look good and, and be presentable. Otherwise, you just weren't doing the right things. Heaven help you if you played cards. <laughs> you, know, you know, cards could be used for poker. So even if you're playing rummy or, or, or spades or hearts, you know, no, no, cards were bad. You can't play cards. You know, you went to the theater. Oh, man, terrible thing to be doing. When they put these laws on people, they made some people think good about themselves. Hey, I'm, I'm really good. Look at all these good things I'm doing. They were able to stand up in pride saying, hey, I've got, I'm following all the rules. And God's looking on them and saying, you're still a sinner. You need my son. The law will kill because then you get these rules that you can't keep. You know, you just are, you fall all the time and you say, and the people are saying, well, see, you can't follow these rules. And you're right, you know what? You can't follow the rules. I'm the type of person, you give me rules, you better tell me why or I'm not going to want to follow the rule. I'm just that way. And I know most people are. You know, here's your rule, don't cross this line. Why not? <laughs> you know, if, there, and if you can't give me a re good reason, you know, you cross that line and the bear attacks you, uh, you know, that would be a good reason not to cross the line. I probably wouldn't cross the line. I might cross it just to see if there really was a bear over there, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's how I am. <laughs> You know, and God knows that about us. 
Paul said the reason for the law was to show us that we're sinners. Because when we're given laws, we want to, we want to test the law. Is it really true? If I cross this line, is there really a consequence? And God is saying, yes, there is. But grace, grace comes along and says, I love you. I care enough for you. I died for you while you were my enemy. I paid for that price, accept that gift. And then all he asks is for us to let our, let our flesh be crucified and he rules in our life. The power of letting him rule. The power of letting him be the one that runs us. And you all know my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ crucifies my flesh, he lives in me, and I live in victory. Not because I'm striving real hard to do it, but because I let him put the flesh to death. If I sow to the flesh, I will reap death. If I sow to the spirit, I reap life. And that's what I want to encourage us to do. Let's, be, let's sow to the spirit. Let's show kindness to people. Let's show them the grace that we have. You know, God says that we wouldn't even seek him if he didn't seek us first. We wouldn't love him if he didn't love us first. We need to show God's love to other people so they can see God's love and be drawn to him. Be able to come to him because of his love. And we want to be able to say, I am showing God's love to people. Why? Not because I'm doing it at all. Because I can't do it. I'm going to guarantee you, I can't do it. Nobody in this room can do it. We cannot love other people unconditionally. It has to be God. It has to be God who loves people. Because they're guaranteed that they're going to do something we're not going to like. All of us that are married, we love our spouse, hopefully, very much. And yet, our spouse will do things <laughs> that we don't like. Whether it's on purpose or not on purpose, they will do things that we're not going to like. Maybe they're in a bad mood and they're trying to make us get mad at them. You know, and we know just the buttons to push, don't we? Our kids know what buttons to push on, the, on, on mom and dad to say, yeah, I just want to see them mad. I want to be in control, so I'm going to go push these buttons. And the next thing you know, there's a battle going on because the love of God isn't flowing through, because the flesh hadn't been crucified. And the hardest thing to do is to love them when they're pushing those buttons, to love them when everything is being done that you don't like. And there's times when we have to go back and apologize to them for having not shown the love of God. But we need to be able to do that more and more. Show his love. Spread his love to our, start with our, if you, if you think it's a hard thing, to start with those that you love. <laughs> it's not easy doing it to them sometimes. <laughs> start by starting getting in practice with those that you love. Learn to accept them for who they are. So often we want to love somebody that's our imaginary friend or our imaginary child or our imaginary parent. You know, we have this image of what they want them to, what we want them to be. And we go, I really love them if they just was, were this way. And God's saying, no, you love them where they're at. <laughs> then he can change them. You know, I've heard it many times. I've heard people say, well, if my daughter would just stop doing this, there wouldn't be any problems. Well, do you love them? Yes. Do you love them in spite of what they're doing? Yes. Every time you talk to them, what do you talk about? Well, what they were doing. <laughs> you know, I want them to change this. So, you know, how long does it take before somebody hears the same thing they don't want to hear anyway before they're going to stop coming around? You know, 
If you keep telling somebody you're doing this wrong and I don't like it, and that's all you ever tell them, it won't be long before they go, okay, I don't like hearing what I'm being told. They tell me this every time, so I'm not going to go around. <laughs> you know, it's very important. You know, if we're going to reach people for Christ, we need to love them for where they're at. Then God opens a door and maybe we can give the gospel message and say there's a repentance needed. But we love them. Are we happy with what they're doing? No. Do we want to see them change? Yes. Can I change them? Probably not. Now, I've shared with you, in my early days of my marriage, I used to pray to God to change my wife. Now I tell him to ask him to change me because I'm the one he changed all the time anyway. Now, I'm the one that he changed, so I might as well pray for the right change in the first place. You know, and that would be God changed my heart toward this person. And you know what? When your heart changes, usually they end up changing. Or at least you don't care about it anymore. I don't know which it is necessarily. Whether I don't care about what they're doing or God changes them in the process. But you know, God changes each individual. Love, respect, grace. Most people know they're doing wrong when they're, when they're doing these things wrong. Their, their, their conscience is eating at them. You know, now, they may have done it often enough that they're not as guilty on it. But you know, even the drunk knows that they're sinning. They do. And yet they go right back to it. And we need to just love them and say, hey, you know, come on, God still loves you. We still love you. And hopefully, eventually, they will respond to God and God will heal, heal them of their disease and their sin. The person who is argumentative. I don't know how many of you know an argumentative person. Every time you're around them, they've got to argue. You know, and they're going to win. If you, even if you make a good point, they're going to win. So heaven help you if you make a few good points in the argument. <laughs> because that just makes them madder and, and meaner. You know, how long does an argument last if you don't, if you don't respond back? <laughs> Easy way to end an argument is just stop fighting. You know, in a, in a, in a, even in a physical battle, if you stop being the aggressor and go just be defending your own, I'm not saying be a punching bag, but you just stop, letting, you know, stop trying to strike back, they will usually wear themselves out and quit fighting. And definitely in an argument, you know, you know you're doing this, that, and the other thing. I'm, you know, I'm not responding, I'm just praying. <laughs> you know, those arguments end very quickly. <laughs> it's real hard to argue when, no, when, when it's a one-sided argument. You know, you've said all that you want to say and they didn't, they didn't say anything back. We reap good. We sow good and we'll reap good. God will say, I'm your defender. I'm the one that protects you. And the greatest thing in the world is to watch God defend you. I had somebody in chloride, you know, that was saying bad things about me and then she called me up and asked, asked to see me and apologized. You know, I was aware of what was going on. People, believe me, people told me all over the place. You know, you're being talked about. Okay, that's good. Let God take care of it. I didn't want to know who it was even because I didn't want to deal with this person differently by even knowing who it was. And yet God worked on that person's heart. God can change lives. He works on people's hearts. And when you don't respond back, people get a little wondering why you're not responding. Then they start looking at the fact that it's God. And so we just want to be able to look at this and say, how are we going to respond? Are we going to show Christ's love? Are we going to let him crucify our flesh? Because if you have crucified flesh and they're attacking you, you know, how much does a corpse defend itself? 
you know, and why don't you just put that out? How much does a corpse, you know, you can go over a dead dog and kick it all day long and it's not going to bite you. That's right. You know, you can go over and kick a corpse all day long and it's not going to get up and fight with you. If we've let Jesus crucify our flesh, they can say all they want about my flesh. It's dead. Christ is living through me. Is it easy to live this way? Absolutely not. Does it get easier? Yes. Any spiritual activity that you do, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Just like any physical activity we do, the more we do it, the easier it gets. I am sure most of you do not think very much when you're driving cars, you know. If you can remember back when you learned to drive a car. Okay, you know, especially if you're driving a clutch. Clutch in, brake on, let the clutch out a little bit, start pressing the gas pedal, you know, and stall the car out. <laughs> install the car out. Install the car out. And then finally you get it, get it down and you, you're still thinking about it. And then you know, a year later, you're driving down the road, you're going to clutch in, gas down, you're not even thinking about it, you're just doing it, you're talking, you're, you're singing with the music, you're not even thinking about what you're doing, because it's become easy. Except for some of the really older people in this church, most of us don't think about walking, do we? <laughs> you know, we really don't think about walking usually. Now once you've gone, you've broken a hip or a knee or you've had some replacements, then you start thinking about it because the doctors tell you you've got to go up the stairs with the correct foot or otherwise you might cause damage and you've got to come down with the right foot and then you start really thinking about it. And it makes it really difficult to walk again, doesn't it? Because you're having to think about what you're doing. But the same thing in spiritual life. The more we do something, the easier it gets. The more of a habit it gets to be. And then we get to the place where Somebody's being mean to us and I'm just loving them, it's normal. You know, it's more abnormal if they get under my skin than it is to, to not let them under my skin. It becomes normal to give the gospel out to somebody and just preach the gospel to them. You know, I love Annie's examples of, you know, she talks about the gospel to everybody, all these salespeople that call her. They've probably taken her off the list just because they don't want to hear the gospel being <laughs> preached back at them. Might be a good way to get off their lists. But she goes, because you'll always go, where do you go to church? You really should be going to church Sunday. Will you do me a favor and go to church? <laughs> you know, how easy is that? Really not hard, is it? You know, and it should be really easy to talk to strangers because are they ever going to see you again? You know, it may be hard to talk to friends and neighbors because you see them every day. But you know, talking to strangers should be the easiest thing you do. Who cares what they think about you because you're never going to see them again. You know, we get visitors around here that come around and they want to see this old church and I let them in and you know what? I always give them the gospel. <laughs> I may only see them one time, but they're going to get the gospel. Am I the best preacher, uh, deliverer, evangelist? No, I'm not the best evangelist, but I know the gospel. And they're going to get the gospel. I plant lots of seeds. That's what we need to do. And always remember, we're not responsible for twisting their arms into accepting Jesus Christ. Our job is real simple. We just tell them that they're a sinner, they need Jesus, and ask them what they're going to do with Jesus. You know what? Every once in a while they might say, yes, they want Jesus, and say a prayer with you. Then you encourage them to get into a good church. So we want to be able to look at that and go forward. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we do. Lord, give us many examples to show others your love and help us to teach others to the gospel. 
Help us learn to get into your word and have our flesh crucified and your spirit moving in our life. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.